Welcome back to the second part of the series on workplace violence. We have Arvind, one of the ED trainees from Tweed Hospital presenting the next article. Thanks guys for having me. So this journal article is a relationship between the intention to leave the hospital and coping methods of emergency nurses after workplace violence. The authors are In Young Yong, a registered nurse, an emergency nurse, and Jisoo Kim, who's an RN and associate professor. It was published in the 9th of December 2017 in the Wiley Journal of Clinical Nursing in collaboration with Ilsan Hospital in Guangxi in Korea and also with Gaikon University in, in Korea. So their main aim was to identify the relationship between emergency nurses' intention to leave the hospital and their coping methods following workplace violence. They've actually cited quite a few previous areas of research and they've looked into workplace violence being an issue, the form, the cause and type of workplace violence, influence on nurses' job satisfaction and also their delivery of care. And then they also were looking at the stress and coping mechanisms that nurses employed. And they've split this into problem-focused mechanisms and emotional-focused mechanisms. So their clinical question was identifying the relationship between emergency nurses' intention to leave the hospital and their coping methods following workplace violence. I couldn't see a clear hypothesis. The design of the study was a descriptive study. It was split into two phases, with the initial being just a, a short pilot study where they wanted to look at the feasibility and the reliability. And then the main study was a large survey. They sent out surveys to seven hospitals with greater than 200 beds in seven different cities around Korea. Their inclusion criteria was, first, you had to be a nurse. Uh, you had to have a year of experience working in the emergency department, and you had to have experienced some form of workplace violence. They excluded if you were a head nurse or a nurse manager. They didn't give reasons as to why they had these um, exclusion criteria. They worked out a minimal sample size of 208. They distributed questionnaires to 260 uh, nurses. 246 responded, 32 were incomplete. So in total, they had 214 questionnaires to derive their results from. And so their measures were split into four broad categories. So workplace violence was the first one. There were 18 separate items, 12 of which were related to physical violence and six were related to the physical threat. And they used a point-based system from zero to four, zero being least severe and four being the most severe. And then the second measure was coping after a workplace violence. And they used uh, 17 items. They gave each one a, a score of one. And so the problem score came to between seven and 35. Third measure was uh, job satisfaction. This was eight items with a score range of eight to 40. And then the final measure was the intention to leave. And this was just a single question, um, yes or no. It has workplace violence made you want to leave your job? 
data was collected. So the questionnaires were, were all sent out. Verbal consent was obtained. The ethics was approved by, by the university and it was all anonymous. No personal data was collected. In terms of the results, there's quite a bit to go through in terms of the actual workplace violence, but essentially what they concluded was that uh, verbal abuse was the most frequent violence experience, then physical threat, then physical violence. And of the nurses who experienced violence, over half, so nearly 61% were considered leaving the hospital. And in terms of coping with the violence, more nurses tended to use an emotional-based coping strategy as opposed to a problem-based coping strategy. And they have actually done a table of what to sort of specify or go through the different variables of problem and emotion-focused. So I'll, I'll just quickly go through a couple of them. So with problem-focused coping, there is essentially reporting to the head nurse or unit manager, seeking help from colleagues, making efforts to pacify the other party, solving the problem through conversation. And then whereas emotion-focused coping was essentially just enduring the situation, thinking it was their own fault, acting as if nothing happened. And then the, the last one, which I thought was very specific, was fly into a rage with bitter recriminations. So I thought that was very, very, very specific. Yeah, so that was their, that was their conclusion was that nurses seemed to employ more emotional-based as opposed to problem-based coping strategies. They did recognise a few limitations. They acknowledged that it was, the studies were all done within a single country. They used convenient sampling. They acknowledged it was recall biased. They didn't include um, sexual harassment, so they um, as one of their measures of workplace violence. And they acknowledged they got the question of whether to leave the workplace was very extremely broad. They acknowledged there could be other variables that could be leading to nurses wanting to leave. Yeah, so in conclusion, this paper appears to want to identify nurses' intention to leave after experiencing a workplace violence. Verbal abuse seems to be the most prevalent. They have created a few and um, have some suggestions of how to how to deal with this um, so social recognition of the laws a switch to more problem focused coping strategies this was actually just from the previous discussion uh, i thought the paper didn't go into what may have led to the workplace violence the paper did say that the workplace violence was experienced more from patients and patients relatives the paper didn't really go into what may have led to that. So they didn't men- it didn't mention drugs or alcohol or mental health. I thought that that was a missed opportunity potentially. Thanks so much, Arvind. I think that was a really good summary of a paper that has a lot in it. I think what I found most interesting from this paper that maybe isn't covered in the other papers that we've discussed this month is looking at the coping strategies staff were using and how that impacted their, you know, experience and want to leave. I mean, I think I'll open this up to the floor, but I think from my point of view, I think most people I've seen in the department at least would start with a problem-focused approach. My feeling is that it's really what happens when that problem-focused approach fails is when the emotion-focused coping strategies start to appear. I don't know what everyone else thinks about what happens when problem-focused coping mechanisms fail or you know, what what they've seen on the floor. So if you experience verbal abuse at work, usually I think people are quite quick just based off our discussion in the last episode to 
kind of account for that by, you know, saying the patient's in pain or trying to figure out what the problem is and verbally de-escalating. I think we all tend to do that in whatever way we can as part of the job. When do you think emotion-focused coping strategies come into play? When you go home and you're no longer at work. That's what I think. I mean, I'm a person that tends to act very quickly on emotion. I have no sort of filter between my brain and my mouth, as those of you guys who know me well would be able to attest to. But I find that when I'm at work, you have to maintain a degree of professionalism, right? So you have to treat people with respect, expect to be treated with that same respect. And when you're not, somehow still maintain, I guess, an appropriate relationship with the patient who's just, you know, mouthed off of you. I've been called a dirty brown girl by someone, to which point the entire team that I was with got up, lunged at this patient and started yelling at him on my behalf because... I was so stunned and didn't know what to do myself because I guess I had that sort of emotion-based response. I was, I was just shocked that someone could say that to someone, let alone me, but that, you know, that's fine, whatever. But I see, that's it. That's what I've just said there. That's it. It's fine. Whatever. That's what we do. Right. I guess that's it. We, we kind of dismiss it until we have a, a moment of privacy or like a space where we feel safer. And then you go home and you cry to your spouse or your, your husband or your, your housemates or what, whoever it may be. I don't know if this is even answering your question, but that's what I think I tend to do is I tend to take it away from the workplace and separate it, even though it is inherent to my work and not to my home life. And then it kind of is dealt with by people who don't really experience the same thing as I do. Aside from, you know, I mean, we do, you know, you vent in the tea room at work or you vent to your friends over dinner, you know, or after work drinks. In the paper, they break it up into problem focused and emotion focused coping strategies kind of venting and speaking to people actually counts as part of your problem-focused coping strategies. Mm. They count the emotion-focused coping strategies more to be, you know, ignoring it or, you know, internalising it mm. and not dealing with it. Mm. So Crying in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> Is the shower part of a problem-based strategy though? Lex? Yeah, because no one sees your tears there. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're seeking out the help of the shower. <laughs> Maybe an easier question is maybe to ask, so this paper's identified that emotion-focused coping strategies are not helpful. How can we promote more problem-focused coping strategies at work? I think what you said earlier, and Amanda, what you've said, kind of really highlight my feelings about this paper. I thought it was really interesting. And it's one of the few papers that I've come across that have actually looked at the ways that staff actually cope with dealing with violent situations. And so I thought it was really valuable, even though methodologically it was quite a vulnerable paper. What you guys just demonstrated is that everyone does both. And when you actually look at the statistics in this paper, it's very apparent that everyone does both, which is why I think that the take-home point is slightly questionable. They've essentially dichotomized this sort of emotion-based approach of, you know, essentially internalizing it, dealing with it yourself and maybe drinking yourself to sleep or crying in the shower or more external proactive approach of reporting the incident, trying to de-escalate the situation and, you know, maybe seeking the help of your colleagues or friends. But then when you drill down into the numbers, so they, they found using a scale, which I don't, as far as I could ascertain, is not externally validated that people who ranked highly in terms of a emotion-based approach tended to have a higher intent to leave. However, they haven't actually told us at all what a high score is in terms of, in terms of emotion-based or problem-based coping. And more than that, when you drill into the numbers, actually, they weren't mutually exclusive. They've given us percentages of the total number of survey respondents for each type of coping and each subset 
And you can see that more than 90% of all survey respondents did most of the things, i.e. pretty much all of the survey respondents, and I'd say pretty much everyone in the room, has some emotion-based coping and some problem-based coping. And so in that context, how you can say that a certain subgroup of the staff who probably, maybe they were slightly skewed, maybe they weren't, we, we don't have any way to quantify it. How you can say that a certain subset of the staff were using emotion-focused coping too much and therefore that was influencing their intent to leave, I don't know. The other interesting point about the data in terms of this is that they've quantified it by saying that it's people who had an intent to leave after an episode of workplace violence in the last year. So they weren't asking people if they had an intent to leave at the time of responding to the survey. And they weren't asking people if they had an ongoing intent to leave. They were asking people if they experienced an intent to leave previously after an episode of violence. Now, obviously, people who are perhaps a little bit more prone to have an emotional response may have a more extreme response and feel a transient thought of, oh, I want to leave this place. But all of the people who responded to the survey were people who are still employed in the hospital, and therefore they all clearly stayed. So there's a bit of data bias there. And I think that it would have been much more interesting if they'd included all of the staff members in these EDs, including staff members who may have left in the last 12 months, and seeing if there was actually a difference between the people who actually left versus the people who have stayed. When you drill into the data that way, perhaps the dichotomy of emotion versus uh, focus coping versus um, problem focused coping is not necessarily a true association. They're all very, very excellent points. I think realistically, it is probably hard to try and even dichotomize coping strategies in the way they've tried to do it in that, you know, most people will do a variety of things that span across both categories. Thank you for that. I think that really breaks down the paper quite significantly, but I think they're all very valid points. I think one thing that's really, uh, it highlights if you were to suggest a recommendation after reading the paper is to have formal staff support and debriefing. You know, no matter what coping strategies you do use, that has to be an organisational responsibility and it has to be a process that should be engaged in after any of these incidents for the staff member to have the support to be able to debrief rather than having to rely on, you know, family, friends and external to actually go through that formal debriefing process. And I think that's in practice what is missing as well in real life. Unfortunately, it's our nature, it's the environment that we work in and we just move on. You know, we just suck it up, move on. Yeah, people respond, they help us, they respond by their physical presence, by taking on the threat but who's actually looking after the person who's been threatened other than that physical response. And I really strongly advocate for staff support in many formats, don't know the exact format to have, but debriefing needs to be part of, of these incidents. And that's really interesting. In my observation, more as a junior medical staff member in the time I spent at Westmead, is that we're actually really good at debriefing when we see something really horrible so a cardiac arrest or a really, really poorly run recess or something quite emotionally draining in the way of sad emotions, you know, like death or cancer or like one of those things. But we don't, as you said, Margaret, we don't really do that with a code black. We kind of just brush it off and move on. And I don't know why that is. I wonder if that's because, you know, we don't perceive that to be as significant an emotion. You know, we haven't seen someone die in front of us. So we just kind of say, oh, you know, they were angry. They had drugs, you know, this, that, whatever. But it's really interesting, I guess, to see that discrepancy because we are really good at, well, in our department anyway, I think we're quite good at debriefing after something that's quite sad. And I think that's the evolution of the department. Mm -hmm. You know, if you looked at 
the department maybe eight years ago, we didn't debrief those incidents either. That was continuously raised as an issue when you reflected on incidents. Uh, M&Ms uh, reflected on, you know, both from a learning perspective, but also from an emotional perspective. Mm. So the department has really evolved. The culture has changed. You know, we look to do debrief. We kind of expect it and we know it's challenging, but it's still engaged upon at some level. We haven't evolved yet that culture for managing our responses to Code Black. And I think that's where we need to be going and it is a requirement that we do that. It's the organization is required to do that. It should be done in every format and it's it's where we need to go. So we need to do that work. I really agree with a lot of what you've said there, Margaret. And it's actually, that's why I like this paper, despite all of the flaws in the data. It's because thematically, it makes for a really interesting read and for useful reflection. Amanda, to what you said, I think there is a lot of value whenever anything traumatic happens, whether it's physical or you know emotional or you know whether it's a medical problem or whatever it is, in us checking in with the other staff just just to you know see how people have responded to it because you, you never know you know I might be fine to brush something off ninety percent of the time, but if I've just had a terrible day at home and then I come to work and get abused by someone, maybe that's going to be the thing that sets me off. You know, I think that's an important point. I think this kind of links to the well-being sphere a bit. There's been a lot of talk about resilience and coping and about how much onus there should be on staff to be resilient and to cope in the face of things that perhaps we shouldn't need to be resilient for or against and things that we shouldn't need to cope with. Sometimes there is a bit of a danger in focusing too much on coping mechanisms, but I think that if we frame it in the way that you have, Margaret, and we focus on the fact that this isn't trying to make staff cope with the problem. It's trying to help staff or support staff in dealing with a complex and difficult work environment. Then I think there is really a role for establishing some sort of psychological support at a systematic level. It's clear when you look at the things that the paper has broken down when they've dichotomized problem-based versus emotion-based coping, like clearly some of the things in the emotion-based coping category are not very healthy. Things like just trying to cope and, and deal with it without, you know, without seeking assistance. Or obviously, if you're going home and drinking as a result of what's happened at work, that's a problem. I think that those are things that would be well addressed with a more consistent systemic approach that is maybe proactive rather than a reactive thing, such as the some of the psychological support services available. In a couple of the departments at Westmead, there is a clinical psychologist that acts as a routine member of support staff. And she essentially provides an opt-out service with regular appointments with all of the medical staff that are in those departments, 30 minutes a month. And, you know, you can see her more frequently if, if you want to, and just provides proactive checking and helps to promote well-being in a, I think, potentially a more helpful way, because then when something traumatic happens, you've already got someone who you're familiar with, who perhaps you engage with, and you don't need to necessarily take the first step yourself and reach out because you've got something that's already there, that's already present, you know, whether you do something proactive yourself or not. Adamina, you obviously come from a psychiatric background. I'm interested in your thoughts around, you know, what our coping strategies should be when it comes to dealing with these problems. First of all, I agree with Margaret in terms of people need to have a space where they can debrief and talk to other clinicians and maybe senior clinicians. I think there needs to be more of an opportunity and a push for clinical supervision for people to have allocated time with senior people, which just one-to-one or maybe even a small group where they can actually say how they feel 
And I think there needs to be more of an emphasis on probably reflective practice as well. So, you know, you can think about the situation and think about maybe what could have happened differently or what you'd like to do differently or why you think we ended up in that situation. And that's just to, I guess, improve your practice. But I think maybe the reason why people don't really have coping strategies or resilience or whatever word you want to use when it comes to aggression with patients is that we are desensitized from it. So rather than, you know, a serious resus or a serious cardiac event where everybody comes together and it's really traumatic, if we were to have those sorts of situations, like how often would they be happening in the emergency? It would be every shift. I think in terms of well-being, Westmead ED, in my perspective, and you know, I'm somebody that's external to their The staff are quite good at supporting the other staff members there. They tend to check in on each other more and try to do what they need to do. But I think we should be, if you're a senior clinician, you should be a bit more aware and attuned to the staff that are around you and seeing maybe who are the people that need a bit more help or struggling. So yeah, I think we just need to use more collaborative and supportive approach and use the resources that we have. The coping strategies people have, it's going to be dependent on their experiences and the resources they have. Some people might not feel comfortable talking with psychologists, but I encourage everybody talks to one. The psychologist, having been in ICU, which is one of the places where they've got that now, I felt very reluctant initially because kind of thought, well, what are we going to talk about? Like, (laughs) And then got in the room and actually found it an incredibly beneficial experience. And I would do lots of things to try and get that implemented within ED for all the staff that work there, the security guards, I often wonder if they ever have someone to talk to because their job seems so challenging. I think that would be incredibly useful tool to have at our disposal, particularly considering, you know, when we're all just chatting, the number of things we're all dealing with on a day-to-day basis. I think it's really important, like sort of touching on all of this, wherever it may be, it's just important to have a space where you can have your emotions validated. That's what I personally find because I was exactly the same as you, Caroline. I'm in the ICU at the moment and was relatively reluctant to speak to a psychologist, not because there's any stigma or anything around it. Before going in to see her, I was like, you know, it probably would be beneficial, but what would she know? I mean, she's not on the floor with me. She doesn't understand. My friends understand. So it's easy to offload or not, not even offload, but to debrief with people who are in that, in a similar situation. But I actually found it quite interesting to have someone validate it from an external point of view the framework for my session with her was more around COVID, right, which is a little bit different to this particular topic, but similar in the sense that I just wanted validation that, yes, you're a healthcare worker, you're in an environment where it is stressful and you are allowed to feel that way. And that made me feel incredible, like so much, so much better just to have someone who was outside of that environment acknowledge that, yes, you're in a difficult situation, which I think is quite different. I don't know if this is any different, but you're having someone external to the field validating what you're going through. Another sort of thing, having someone acknowledge that you're in this environment that is really challenging and that might provide another way of coping. I went in sceptical, found it extremely helpful. And that's why I think having a systemic thing that's at work that comes to you rather than you having to go to it and that is pre-existing makes so much of a difference as opposed to you know, just giving someone a phone number and saying, oh, look, there's a workplace-based support thing for you if you feel like you're sufficiently traumatized because most people aren't going to ring. Whereas if the appointment is already made and you know that it's 11 o'clock on your shift and you just need to go and do it, you know, perhaps you'll achieve more benefit. And you're right, Amanda, the fact that she's 
a specific specialized person who specifically interacts with medical professionals makes so much difference because she has that institutional awareness and she understands how a hospital works and that makes a really big difference. I think it's also about normalizing being not okay. I mean, there's everyone knows the Are You Okay campaign and I, I find that a little frustrating because you say no and everyone goes, well, now what? I think we see the same thing in in healthcare, that the message coming, let's look at the context of COVID, because it's been an unprecedented strain on healthcare services and frontline workers for such a sustained period that we're really struggling. But we see messaging coming out from ministry that, oh no, the New South Wales healthcare system is in a strong position. And so if you're a frontline worker, you're, oh, we're in a strong position. So I shouldn't be feeling stressed or scared or concerned. And I really feel that part of the job as senior clinicians is to advocate that maybe we're not doing okay, that we are really struggling. And I think you're seeing that in some of the media, that there's a lot of anonymous reports and media articles saying, no, look, we are struggling. And I really applaud that because there's untenable demands upon us. And similarly, going back to violence in the ED, I'd say, look, part of it is we should be saying, and we saw some of this with, you know, violence in the workplace ads that can come up on TV occasionally, that it's not okay to be violent. But I think part of it is saying, look, our healthcare workers are struggling and it's and we should be normalising that it's okay to not feel okay and then normalise getting help for that. I think that's actually a really, really important point and that's maybe one of the reasons I really liked that QR code idea you brought up in the previous article discussion. Like I think anything that helps staff realise that, you know, what they're experiencing isn't something that just has to be endured or that they should be expected to cope with in itself might help in terms of giving people ways to cope with these things. Like if there was a QR code that allowed you to log unpleasant experiences and if there was someone even keeping an eye on that and if someone's getting a whole lot of experiences in a row and reaches out and says, hey, do you want to chat about it? That might be enough to kind of help people realise that, you know, experiencing the workplace violence isn't okay and giving them an opportunity to find ways to deal with it as well. All right, well, I might wrap up this discussion here. Arvind, are you happy to just give us some take-home messages from the article and maybe some of the discussion as well? We all agree the article highlights some good points about problem and emotion-based coping strategies. But I think where the data slightly falls apart is how much each one contributes to staff tension to leave work or uh, leave the hospital but i think we all agree that having more formal sort of standardized i guess a service counseling service for healthcare providers especially in ed would be extremely beneficial like an opt-out service so a lot of you have said you're initially skeptical when you went in but then found it extremely beneficial yeah i think if we can make that common among all eds i think that would be very beneficial Thank you everyone for making it through to the end of another podcast episode with us here at Network 5. I would like to take the opportunity to thank our guests for their contributions to our discussion today. As always, we would love to hear your feedback and any questions you may have. You can contact us via our email, westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. All the links to the papers discussed today will be available in our show notes and we encourage you to go and have a closer read of these two. We look forward to being back in New Year's again soon. Thank you, everyone.